Hey folks, thanks for checking out Missio Church in Niner, Iowa. You are listening to audio recorded at our Sunday morning service. If you'd like any more information on the gospel or would like to learn more about Missio Church, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Missio Mount Air. So I recently had a conversation with one of my cousins from my dad's side. She's doing like extensive work in our family history, like all this genealogy stuff. And in her journey, she's discovered some some pretty interesting stories and people. For example, in the mid-1800s, my great-great-great-great-great-great-grandparents were living in Germany. And they wanted to emigrate to the United States. They had a daughter named Katie. They traveled from Germany to England to catch a ship to go to America. On the day of their departure, Katie, who was a young child, wandered away while they were packing and getting ready to head to the ship, and they couldn't find her. And they searched all over the town and all over the harbor, and they, they, they literally, they searched and they searched and they searched, but could not find Katie, they looked so long, they missed their ship. After several hours, Katie was found. And they had to book passage on a different vessel, which was not easy in these days. But when they arrived in the United States, they learned that the original ship that they were supposed to be on got lost at sea. And it never arrived, and it was never heard from again. The entire crew and every passenger met their fate at sea. Think about this. Had Katie not wandered away, my great-great-great-grandparents would have never come to America. They would have never settled, I thought this was awesome, in Clinton, Iowa. See, I have Iowa roots, not Illinois. I have Iowa roots. I've come home, people. (sighs) They had babies. That eventually led to my dad being born. And I like thought for a minute, I'm like, man, I was a kid wandering away from not being alive. <laughs> like, that's pretty remarkable. It's amazing the more I learn about our family how different one decision, one ship, a little girl getting lost could have changed so much or written an entirely different story altogether. Many throughout history, and even in our own day, would call this random chance uh, and view the world as a string of random chance, not nothing guiding it, and it's all heading nowhere with no real purpose. But there are others who will call this fate, fate being this personless, faceless thing, maybe even an impersonal deity who set things in motion. I hear this a lot, the universe. The universe has aligned this for us to be together. Like what is that, the Crab Nebula? Is the Crab Nebula what governs everything? Like which part of the universe, right? But this, this, this impersonal force that built scientific laws and guides it all around, but in the end, fate is a passive and impersonal thing, again, with no real purpose and no real direction. Yet the scriptures give us a completely different picture. 
It is a picture of a God who is the creator of all things. He made all things visible. He made all things invisible. He has established every ruler and every authority and everything in the universe, everything in heaven and everything on earth. And this creator is all-knowing and all-powerful. Scripture reveals God as creator, as this all-knowing and all-powerful God who is intimately active and actively engaged and unchangeably directing all that he has made according to his will and according to his purpose. This is known as the doctrine of divine providence. I knew you were wondering what this was, so I've got a definition for you that comes from the London Baptist Confession of Faith from 1689, which is an awesome confession that is really tied as well to the Westminster Confession of Faith, which stands in broader historic thousands of year Christianity. So what is divine providence? Here's what the London Baptist Confession says about divine providence. There's a lot of big statements here, so I'm gonna kinda go slow. God, the good creator of all things, in his infinite power and wisdom, upholds, directs, arranges, and governs all creatures and things from the greatest to the least by his perfectly wise and holy providence. Now, why does he do this? To the purpose for which they were created. He governs according to his infallible or perfect foreknowledge, and the free and unchangeable counsel of his will, which means he's not getting input from anybody else. His providence leads to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, infinite goodness, and mercy. That's a rich statement that I, man, look that up and think about it this week. (laughs) In short, divine providence is God actively working all things to accomplish their created purpose for his glory. This doctrine, which rises from God's holy word, is such a grace to us that has tremendous consequences of security and peace as we live out this time on earth, even through adversity, even through suffering, and even through defeat. Theologian John Calvin, one of the key reformers, writing on the subject of divine providence, says this. He says, but when once the light of divine providence has illumined the believer's soul, meaning once we understand this as believers, he is relieved and set free, not only from extreme fear and anxiety which formerly oppressed him, but from all care, for he justly shudders at the idea of chance, so he can confidently commit himself to God. Oh, that's a great statement. See, life without the eyes of faith, here's what it appears. It appears chaotic. 
It appears, it appears full of random chance, or at best, at best, a yin and a yang dance of good versus evil, and I hope good wins. And if this is how life really was, here's what Calvin's point is. We should be tremendously anxious. Don't seek therapy, don't seek help, because there's none to give. It's all chance. Who knows what's gonna happen? Give in to your anxiety. It also means there's no point to hardship and there's no meaningful answer or solution to evil. However, from a biblical worldview, we grow in understanding that nothing can be further from the truth. God is directing, God is arranging, God is governing all things and everything will accomplish what God intended it to accomplish. Suffering has a point that one day uh, or that, that will one day end for those who belong to God through Jesus Christ. That even the turbulent waters of seemingly unbridled evil is not beyond the mighty and all-knowing God who demonstrates his power and his goodness by using even evil for his good purposes. Nothing is outside of his control, and his people can safely be at rest in the strength of God who fulfills every promise to them in Jesus Christ. Over the last several weeks, we've been looking at the life of Joseph, and we've, uh, we're going to continue to walk through the life of Joseph as we finish Genesis. Believe it or not, guys, we're going to be done by Easter in Genesis. Joseph's life is a beautiful display of God's providence. Today, on our, as our journey continues in Genesis chapter 41, we're, we're going to highlight 40, but 40 really sets up chapter 41. We will see where it has all been leading, how God's hand has been working everything for his glory, has been working for Joseph's good, and he's going to take his mission to redeem a world back to himself in another big step forward. But here's the deal. This is a really long chapter. You always give these to me. Uh, <laughs> but we're going to look at it in three chunks, okay? So what we're going to do now is we're going to look at chapter 41, verses 1 to 13. Otherwise, another way to look at it is Pharaoh's dream. Pharaoh's dream. So remember, Joseph is in prison. He was put in prison for something he didn't do. He was framed for it. Now, chapter 40 tells us that he, and at the end of 39, that Joseph thrived in prison. He was put in charge of the prison. No one had any worries. The prisoners were blessed. He was blessed. The, 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 the prison guards were blessed. But while he was in prison, there were these two people that used to work in Pharaoh's house. One was the baker, the chief baker, the chief cook. The other one was known as the chief cup bearer. These two guys had a dream. And they, went to, and they were telling each other about the dream. And then Joseph overheard the dream and told them what the dreams meant. The, ch the, the, the chief baker's dream was, I hate to tell you this, bud, but you're going to be put to death. The cupbearer had a dream, and Joseph was like, you're actually going to be restored back to your position. And you're going to have a position of honor and dignity. And it says that when the cupbearer went back to be with Pharaoh, it says that he forgot about Joseph. So now we're two years after that moment, right? So here, pick it up in verse 1. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. 
and behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh woke, and he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. And Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. So our text opens with after two whole years. It's important to remember why this is important. Like I said a minute ago, Joseph has been in prison for a really long time. He was there because of a lie. He was an innocent man who was sold into slavery by his own brothers and was now in prison for something he didn't do. And while God was in prison, God blessed him. And then he interprets the dreams for these two uh, men. Two whole years after the cupbearer was restored, Joseph is still in prison. On top of that, of the years he had already spent in prison. Can you imagine this? Ripped from, from his father and sold into slavery by his brother. Falsely accused and sentenced to prison with absolutely no hope of getting out. And the one chance you get, he forgets you. Yet even in all this tragedy, God is still working and arranging things according to his good purpose. Chapters 37 to 40, in many ways, we're preparing for the events that are happening in 41, beginning with Pharaoh having two very disturbing dreams. These dreams of seeming abundance and scarcity, they greatly troubled Pharaoh. He did not understand what they meant. And so verse 8 says that he called all the wise men and all the magicians in Egypt in order to interpret them, and no one could. And you can imagine the cupbearer watching all of this, seeing the ineptitude of the so-called wise counselors coupled with the helplessness of Pharaoh, the seeming God on earth. And then he remembers Joseph. All the collective wisdom in the most powerful nation on earth could not interpret the dreams or calm the spirit of the most powerful king on earth. Pharaoh, the wise men, and the magicians, and therefore all of Egypt sits troubled and bewildered and at a loss. Don't miss that. What I'll call divine irony here. Because Pharaoh will now turn to a Hebrew slave for wisdom. 
The cupbearer tells his story. He and the baker had their own dream when in prison, and a young Hebrew interpreted both, and each interpretation proved true. You can sense Pharaoh's hastiness to all this as we move to the second major section where Joseph is now brought before Pharaoh. Let's pick up the story. Verse 14. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I've heard it said that you uh, hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, behold, in my dream I was standing on the banks of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, came out of the Nile and fed in the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I'd never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows. But when they had eaten them, no one would have known that they would have eaten them, for they were still as ugly as it is in the beginning. Then I awoke. I saw in my dream seven ears growing on one stalk, full and good, seven ears withered, Thin and blighted, the east wind sprouted after them, and the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears, and I was told to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears, blighted by the east wind, are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow it, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dreams meant that this thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Now therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man to set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers in the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up the grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be reserved for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish during the famine. So here's what we see. Pharaoh sent for Joseph, who was quickly brought out of the pit. A good reminder of where he was. Joseph then prepared himself as was customary and he's promptly brought in. Right away, Pharaoh doesn't do a lot of niceties. He just gets right down to business. I've had a dream, and no one can interpret it. I've heard you can interpret dreams. So Joseph tells him. Joseph, who's matured a lot through the years, takes no credit for his ability. In fact, he said, it's not me. It is God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. In this short response, here's what we see already developing in Joseph's character. Number one, Joseph is not afraid to talk about God in front of a man who is literally believed to be God. And that Joseph's God is the only one who will calm his troubled spirit. 
This is what Joseph meant by a favorable, favorable answer. It didn't mean that there was going to be good news. It meant that his trouble of not knowing his dreams would be alleviated. But number two, we see that Joseph plays the part of a prophet. He's not heard the dream yet, but he knows that God will interpret the dream. So then Pharaoh, right, he tells him this dream and again reminds him that no one is able to tell me what this means. And it's not important to miss what's happening here. This powerful Pharaoh is brought to weakness and desperation. And all of Egypt's wisdom was rendered useless and foolish. And now standing before Pharaoh in his court is this young slave just out of prison on whom the power of Egypt is waiting with bated breath to hear from. And in verses 25 to 36, we see Joseph's response, which can be broken up into two small sections. The first being the dream's correct interpretation. And the second is Joseph's wise counsel in light of what to do in light of the dreams. And he says there's going to be seven years of abundance and there's going to be seven years of famine. And the a famine is going to be so bad, no one is going to remember the abundance. And Joseph repeats three times that all that was coming was from God. God was the giver of dreams. God has fixed this famine. God has fixed this abundance. And God sent Pharaoh a message about his plan for Egypt. And what I find to be a stunning statement when you considered it was said by a seemingly weak, insignificant, imprisoned slave to the, to the apparent supreme authority on earth says this to him. This is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. In other words, Pharaoh, there is nothing you can do about this. All your power, all your royal stature, all the wisdom of your courts, and all the resources of your kingdom, it will not stop what God in his providence has set to do. Pharaoh just remains silent. And as Joseph then gives wise counsel about what to do next, Joseph displayed not only prophetic wisdom, but the interpretation, but now he also gives wise counsel about how Egypt can be saved from this. And he says, you've got to appoint a man, a wise man, that during the years of abundance is going to take a portion of the abundant grain and store it so that when the famine comes, you can dish it out and feed people so they don't die. And from here, we move to our third section in, chapter, in verses 37 to 57. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves on your command. Only as regards to the throne, I will be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride his second chariot. And they called out before him, Bow the knee. Then he set him over the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh. And without your consent, no one shall lift up a hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zephaneth-Paneah, 
and he gave him a marriage to Aseneth, the daughter of Potiphera, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went all through the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly, and he gathered up all the food of these seven years which occurred in the land of Egypt and put food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it, and Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Before the year the famine came, two sons to Joseph were born. Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and, my, and, my father, and, and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was famine in all the lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people called, cried to Pharaoh for bread, and Pharaoh said to the Egyptians, go to Joseph, what he says to you do. When the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt, to Joseph, to buy grain, because the famine was so severe over the earth. Pharaoh is so impressed and sees God's hand on Joseph's life. He had searched for wisdom and counsel throughout Egypt, but he found none. But he did with Joseph, and he recognized that this wisdom came from a divine hand. The Spirit of God was with Joseph. There does not need to be a search for another wise and discerning man. Joseph is the one. He was not only the prophet who told what God was about to do, but he's also the wise counselor. So Pharaoh, he exalts him to the second highest position in Egypt, and only Pharaoh will be above him. And Pharaoh goes through a symbolic ceremony, putting a ring on his finger, dressing him, giving him a chariot, finally going through the city where the people are calling out, bow the knee before him. Joseph is fully instated as a minister of Egypt. At 30 years old, he begins the life's work God was preparing for him all along. Thirteen years have passed since we met him. In that time, he's been betrayed. He's been carried off by slave traders. He, he, he was been successful in serving his master. and He was put in prison because of a lie. He had been forgotten and left to rot in a dungeon. But behind it all, the God's divine providence was guiding, directing, and governing these things to bring him to the point where he was ready to sit with Pharaoh. The next seven years, he executed the plan to perfection. He and his wife give birth to two sons who are aptly named in honor of God's guiding work in his life. The pain of his past is forgotten because it paled in comparison to where he is now. And God made him fruitful in the land of his exile. It's a beautiful picture of God's providential grace bearing fruit when it accomplishes its purpose. And our chapter closes with the years of plenty coming to an end and the famine beginning, just as God said it would. And the famine came not only to Egypt, but to the entire known world at the time. 
And while the surrounding nations found themselves devoid of food, they all come to Egypt. They all come to Joseph, and Joseph is able to give them relief. The whole earth ends up coming. So what are we to take from this? Number one, it's good to know a narrative. I'm sorry I read 57 verses, and I'm not sorry I read 57 verses. Divide, here's, no, here's the first observation I think is critically important for us. Number one, divine providence guides the nations and their rulers. Guys, if there's, if there's one thing that we as Christians need to rest on, it's this. Because we are losing our ever-loving minds as a nation. We think that our fate rests on the 2024 election. It doesn't. And if you think it does, stop it. God rules the nations. Now, that doesn't mean we don't vote. It doesn't mean we don't care. It doesn't mean we don't strive to be good citizens. But at the end of the day, let's not act like who sits on the, in the Oval Office determines our future loyalty and, the, and whether our God sits on the throne or not. God moved powerfully under the most evil and wicked rulers throughout the earth, and God's people have thrived. We're gonna be okay. Can we not raise the flag of Trump or Biden more than we raise the flag of Jesus in our life? Number two, divine providence uniquely guides his people. We see this in Joseph, even in the hardship. There was never a moment where he was outside the care of his God. We will see this even more in chapter 45 with an amazing declaration that Joseph says to his brothers as he looks back over the course of his life and why it all happened for good. God did it all for good. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to to his purposes. We don't have to lose our minds, guys. We, yes, I'm not telling us to seek suffering. I'm not telling us to seek hardship. I'm not telling us that when hardship comes, we don't grieve. But at the end of the day, if we understand that there is nothing that can take us from the hand of our God and that he will accomplish his purposes in our lives, and though I be forsaken for a moment, though I walk through the valley of grief in a moment, though I'm in a place where I feel perplexed and crushed and abandoned, I know the truth on which I stand. My God will never abandon me. He will never leave me nor forsake me. He will accomplish his purposes for me. I am his child, and I am a part of a bigger story than my temporary emotional state, that I can rest in the fact that God's divine providence uniquely guides me and all of his people where one day all the suffering we endure now, all the hardship we endure now does not compare, Paul says, to the eternal weight of glory that awaits you. And even through your suffering, God declares the message of mercy to the world. 
to, because when we hold on to Christ, when it makes no sense at all, there's something that is told about the worth of Christ and the sufficiency of Christ and the holiness of Christ and the beauty of Christ that says, oh, the world is crashing around me, but there is something more secure. There is something more beautiful. There is something that holds my heart when nothing else will, and the world says everything I hold is sand in my fingers. What is so secure that you have? And we get to look at him and say, oh, it's Christ. Oh, it's Christ. If not for divine providence, there is not a promise of God we could rely on. But God is the one who directs the nations and our lives. And for those who trust in Christ, every single promise of God is true. And it is certain. And it will never be taken from you. Every trial, every joy, every season of long hardship, grief, loneliness, depression, even victory is governed by a strong, good, gracious hand of Almighty God. And finally, divine providence is centered on Jesus Christ. This cannot be missed. Joseph points to Jesus on whom all history hangs. Joseph was in the pit and exalted to the right hand of Pharaoh. He, is the, he was the prophet, the wise counselor, and the savior of Egypt to whom all the nations came to get bread. Joseph was clothed with, the clothed with the power of Pharaoh, and all his kingdom was told to bow to Joseph. And Joseph gave bread to the hungry, not only to Egypt, but the entire world. Jesus was in the pit of the grave after his unjust death on a cross. Three days later, he is exalted to the right hand of God the Father and is clothed with holiness, majesty, and splendor. He is the one true prophet who reveals God to us. He is the wise counselor on which the wise builder builds their life. And he is the worker of salvation for all his people. He is the true bread of life who gives eternal life to all who trust in and follow him. He is the one exalted to whom all the nations come. And he says, I am the bread of life. I am the living water. Come to me, all who are thirsty. Come to me, all who are hungry. Come to me, all who are lost. And the Father has set his seal of approval on him and says, it is by my son, Jesus Christ, you will be saved. All history is redemptive history and it's being led to a fixed point where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. His name is lifted higher than any name, any ruler, and any authority and divine providence is arranging, directing, and governing all things from the greatest to the least to that end. That is the culmination of all history. But so what? Why does it matter? I think for two reasons. Divine providence brings comfort and salvation. 
John Calvin and Martin Luther both said that the divine, that the doctrine of divine providence should be the should be to the Christian a great comfort and consolation, for nothing is outside the control and will of God, and that He strongly holds us in Christ, is fulfilling every promise and doing so according to all His powerful and all-knowing and unchanging person. I challenge you to think and meditate deeply on this. Let it comfort your heart as you traverse the dangerous valleys, alleyways, and turbulent seas of life. If you are not a follower of Christ here today, I pray, I deeply pray, you see all life, all history, and that all the future is centered on Jesus, not you, not me, not Missio Church, not your job. It is centered on Jesus. And like Joseph gave bread to the hungry that they might live, Christ is the bread of our souls that gives eternal life. He died on the cross for sin. He rose from the grave showing that everything he said was true and that you and I can find eternal life in his name. And it is no accident that you are here today listening to this message and hearing the call of God to trust in Christ because there is forgiveness for you. Genuine, real forgiveness. It doesn't matter what you've done in your past. It doesn't matter who you are or who you're not. It doesn't matter what you've lost or what you've gained or what you've let slip through your fingers. It's not about what you've done. God is not looking for you to impress him so that maybe he'll let you in. He is calling you. Place your trust in Jesus. Follow him as your God, as your only hope, resting in the consolation that God holds all things together, knowing knowing that he knows and that he is powerfully good. He is powerfully good as he guides, governs, upholds, and directs all things. Oh, be compelled by his goodness. Be secure in his strength and live as if it all is true not just here, but as you leave those doors. Because Jesus is who the world needs most. Father in heaven, we come to you in the name of your Son. And God, I, I pray that we would find rest and salvation in your divine providence. That we would not leave divine providence just to be some nerdy doctrine that just pastors and theologians care about. But God, we would, we would see what that means for us. And that it would cause us, if we don't know you, to run to Christ. To trust him. To be our sufficient savior. That today would be the day of salvation and God, for those that came here this morning that know you, oh God, bring great, deep, rich, abiding comfort in the truth that they've given their lives to. 
May we let our reasonableness be known to the world around us, for the Lord is at hand. And in that, we know we don't minimize grief or hardship or sadness, but we have a hope through it. May we be so captivated by your goodness and power and find deep rest for our hearts and souls because of what you've done in Jesus Christ. In your son's name we pray, amen.